listen, we have this nervous system and we have an alarm system. Our nervous system is meant to vacillate between rest and digest and fight or flight. The goal is not to be completely one or other. Like the goal is not to be happy and relaxed all the time and never concerned about anything. The goal is also not to be so alarmed and afraid and anxious all the time. In a perfect world, we're vacillating between the two based on the situations that we're in. Pain can create a sense of like delusion and distortion of the world around us. And I think a lot of us are looking to just become a better version of ourselves. Like, I am going to outrun this version of myself that needs tenderness, but that part of you that needs tenderness is going to scream from the rooftops until they get it. And they're always going to need it until you give it to them. A need is not met until it's met, you know? And I think a lot of us need to make space to let ourselves be loved. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. I'm your host, Nicole Ingram. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, Nicole here. I am so excited to introduce you to Kobe Campbell. Kobe is a licensed clinical mental health counselor, trauma specialist, and author of the new book, Why Am I Like This? How to Break Cycles, Heal from Trauma, and Restore Your Faith. In this conversation, Kobe vulnerably shares her story with us. She takes us on a healing journey from one of the darkest moments of her life to her current work helping people heal from their own painful pasts. Kobe holds a Master's of Arts in Christian Counseling from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, so she shares her perspective of adopting a more expansive view of God and the positive impact this faith has had on her healing journey. She not only shares how her personal experience of divine love has shaped her story, but we discuss grief and trauma, triggers and behavioral patterns, and how to heal from damage that we might have thought was beyond repair. We talk about the benefits of experiential therapy, somatic release, and how one of the most simple antidotes to our deepest pain is to move our bodies. Friends, we want you to know that this raw and honest conversation touches on suicide, and in light of this heavy theme, we want to make sure that you take care of yourself. If you're not in the place to engage with this topic today, that's okay. We'll be here if and when you're ready. In the meantime, we hope you give yourself the space to find the connection, hope, and healing that you need. We also want to encourage you to reach out for help. You can find support at TWLOHA.com, where To Write Love on Her Arms has an incredible catalog of resources and connections in your area. If you need immediate support, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Line at 988. Or if you just need someone to talk to, you can go to warmline.org. Friends, we are so grateful for you. There is hope, healing is possible, and you matter. Now, let's dive into this meaningful conversation with Kobe Campbell. We are here with Kobe Campbell, licensed trauma therapist, counselor, and author of Why Am I Like This? It's going to teach us how to break cycles, how to heal from trauma. Kobe, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? It's so good. We're so happy to be sitting down with you. We kind of know that most trauma therapists didn't end up trauma therapists by accident. So do you want to share a little bit about your story? How did you how did you land in this line of work? What yeah, got you here? That's a great question. Um, I landed in this work because of my own trauma. You know, I think growing up, I really struggled as a kid with depression and anxiety and didn't know what it was. Um, In 2013, I had a pretty like life-shifting, life-altering moment where um, I tried to take my life. I just kind of felt like, man, life is not worth living anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. You know, it wasn't this like, you know, it wasn't this dramatic thing that we often see depicted in TVs. It was like, I'm tired and I don't understand what life is for. And I would just rather not, you know? And so... um, I had some pills available from uh, Wisdom Tooth Extraction that I was not supposed to have access to. And, um, you know, college kid, first apartment, I had my pills, I had my alcohol, and I just, you know, wrote this letter to my sister. And I was like, you know what? 
I'm sorry, but I can't do this. And I'm sorry for whatever you're going to have to endure after this happens. And, you know, I just kind of had this moment where I was like, I'm just going to go to sleep and not wake up, Uh, you know, but God, of course, I had this really annoying at the time. Now he's my brother-in-law really annoying friend who was like, I'll take you to Bible study. Like, do you want to come? Do you want to pray? Like, we're having a worship night. And I'd be like, no, but you can pick us up from the club. You know, this is before Uber and taxis were still a little sketchy. And, you know, this friend was so kind, so present. And he texted me. I had, like, taken the pills, laid down, had kind of just accepted, like, this is it for me, you know? And... Mm -hmm. Sorry, I still get emotional just thinking about it. Thank you. And um, he texted me and said, hey, I was praying and the Lord said that you took some pills and you drank some alcohol. And he told me to tell you that you're not going to die and that you (laughs) have a purpose for your life. And, you know, I used to I used to tell that story, that moment of my life from a place of like sadness. Um, And now it it really is like tears of joy because I truly was at a place I thought was irredeemable. I was at a place I thought there's no way you come back from this much sadness, this much anxiety, this many panic attacks. Like I really believed nothing could change in my life. And You know, I think in those moments, you realize that the solution is beyond you. You know, I I always tell my friends, like, sometimes our deep pain requires divine comfort, divine intervention. And it's not until we get to that deep place of, like, acknowledging how wounded we are that we can truly be open to divine intervention. And so... After that, I, you know, became a Christian and had this undeniable moment where I was like, oh, my gosh, there's a God out there who sees me. I was excited, slightly creeped out and, um, you know, grew up going to church, but didn't know much about really having a personal relationship with God. And after that, I did all the things I made all my husband always says, make all the Christian noises. You know, I went to church, I went to Bible study, I did all the things. And the truth was, like, I was still depressed. I was still anxious and I tried to fight it off with like Bible verses and prayers and words. And I was having like flashbacks of things that happened in childhood. I was having, you know, memories of things I just didn't want to think about moments of abuse and disappointment and abandonment. And I was like, no, God, uh, uh, this is not how it's supposed to work. I am a new creation. Get the, get the new mind in check, father, please. (laughs) Like, I, I don't know. I just remember feeling so much shame from myself, from others, that like, you're supposed to be a Christian. Like, why are you so sad all the time? Why are you so, you're so upset. You're so irritable. You're so, and I remember saving up my, I was still in college, saving up my like the money my parents would send me every month that I used to like just blow on eating out Olive Garden. Garden <laughs> <laughs> was like fancy for a college student. Um, <laughs> Those breadsticks, yeah, uh-huh. they're endless. I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember <laughs> saving up that money and finding a therapist that had like a sliding scale, and I walked to therapy every Tuesday at three fifteen, and my therapist was also a believer and. That was important to me. She was a white woman. And at the time, that was hard for me. You know, I felt like I'm not, I'm Black, but I'm also African. And so there's a whole cultural background that can be hard to explain unless you're connected to it or live within it. And so Brooke still changed my life. You know, like I am where I am today because of Brooke. And if I would have assumed that I needed everything that I thought I needed, I would have missed some of like the greatest healing of my life. And so went to therapy and was like, oh my goodness, what if God sent me here to therapy to heal? What if I actually feel closer to God 
because I'm going to therapy, because I'm learning how to be well. The desire to be well is something I think many of us have, but do we have the skills to actually live out that wellness? Regardless of your faith, the answer is usually not really, right? And so for me, I just felt this like fire of like, I have to do this. I want to do this Mm. for people like me who feel hopeless, for people like me who feel like, how does this even intersect? How do I believe in you and believe that like you love me and care for me, but then also process some like really hard moments? How is it possible to heal from something I can still remember? How is it possible to experience restoration in my everyday life? And that's where God kind of sent me on my on my own trauma recovery journey that led to me becoming a trauma therapist and saying like, it is possible. Like the mean-spirited, angry, judgmental perspective that we have of God, the one that gives us more anxiety <laughs> instead of less, the one that makes us more depressed, more anxious, like that's, that's not, not who the, God yeah. is. Yeah. That's not who he is. Thank you for sharing yeah. all that. What a powerful story. And um, I love sort of what you're talking about, the intersectionality of, you know, our faith or our higher power or God, whatever our language is, and yeah. like the practical therapeutic practice kind of of like yeah. doing the work. And I just think that those things work so beautifully together. It doesn't have to be an either or question. Although a lot of times it feels like it does, which is just sort of confounding that there's, there's so many things that can work together in our healing. I was curious if you could take us back to, you know, sort of receiving the text message, like practically did that sort of just stop you in your tracks and you're like, oh gosh, this is, this is my lifeline. Like I need to get help from where I am. I just think practically a lot of people that are in that place are like, I'm already too far down the road of ideation or planning to sort of step back. So I just love to hear about your experience about how do you start kind of undoing some of that? Yeah, I, I will be honest. I got that text and tried to turn my phone off (laughs) and was like, "Uh." right. That's real. It was like, there was this dichotomy of, of someone sees me and someone sees me, you know, this, I am seen and witnessed. And I think every human being longs for that. But then there was also this, I am seen. And I think every human being also simultaneously fears that being seen for who we are, as we are, you know, we long for it. And at the same time we resist it. And, you know, it kind of was a divine You're, you're speaking my four love language over here. You know, oh, yeah. in the Enneagram four, it's like push Let's and pull. go there. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. sorry. Absolutely. No, it, it is a push and pull. And I think that, you know, to be honest, I feel like God just used my weariness for my good. I like, I tried to turn my phone off for whatever reason. It just would not turn off. He was relentless in texting me over and over and over and over again. And I was too, I was like too weary to fight off God's persistence. Too weary to like, you know, be logical and, 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 you know, find some way to think my way out of it. I was just at a moment. And, and I also think You know, you said a lifeline. That's really what it was. The one thing that stuck out of that text I received was that God longs to be with you. And I think that was like a a super personal, super nuanced, like beautiful piece. Yes. Like it was like the gut punch. The one thing I wanted Mm -hmm. so badly was just to feel like someone, not just that they would tolerate me, but that they would like long to be with me and so I think that was what kind of caught my emotional attention like that's possible that someone wants that what's so interesting is there's this beautiful like deus ex machina moment right like these are written into Shakespeare plays like God divine intervention like out of nowhere gets dropped this person or this thing or this you know angel or whatever yeah Um, and you felt sort of seen in that in that cosmic way, right? And then fast forward in your spiritual context, 
you're kind of playing whack-a-mole with all these tools that are not working for you. And so I'm, I'm, I can't help but wonder, like, it's really beautiful. You're talking about this intersection of faith and trauma. And while your faith in God is what pulled you out of like your darkest moment, mm-hmm. it also, you enter into this space where people are sharing with you like, oh, it's okay. Like, we're looking forward. We're pressing ahead. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm pulling this from your story that I'm familiar with because I'm so yeah. grateful that you let me read your book. But the irony of like humans being so afraid of something. And and I wonder like, what did that moment look like for you to go? I think I need to get equipped with real tools. Like what what pushed you to go to therapy in, in, when you were in that spiritual context kind of longing for, okay, I want to dig deeper into this you know, yeah. I'm feeling seen by God. I want to press into that. But then the the context, the community context is kind of pushing you away from it. So yeah. that's a loaded question, but I think you kind of know what I'm digging into. Yes. So honestly, I think that if I had not had such a personal experience, I don't know if I would have held on to my faith. You know, like for me, it was like I really began to filter what was being said to me f- through the experience I had. You know, like when I wanted to kill myself, that's not how I felt like God treated me. That's not what I received. That's not, I received like a, like a supernatural tenderness, like a gentleness, like this blanketing of like peace, this blanketing of like, it's okay. I got you. I'm here for you. Like a, like a divine bear hug. And what you're giving me feels like someone has a little knife and they're shanking me, you know? And so for me, I was like, something, something's not working. And then also I got to see in other people that a lot of the things that they were giving me to advise me in my faith wasn't working for them either, right? And I think that's why I wrote this book is because there's so many people that they've become so deep in religion that they've lost the actual faith of whatever they're believing. Right. Like the faith that God actually designed the body. And so maybe we should implement tools and skills that honor the body instead of exhaust it and exacerbate its its sicknesses. Right. It's it's weak points. Like so for me, it was I personally have experienced a tenderness that I never in a million years thought I would receive from anyone. And I'm going down the path that explores God through the lens of the grace and the mercy that I got. And for me, it was, I know it's there. Like, this has to make sense. And that's why I kind of, like, became became a little obsessive about, like, you know, psychology and counseling. I was like, this has to, like, I went on an investigation. I was like, this has to intersect. And it does. And it, you know, it, it really does. And that's why I wrote this book, for people who are, like, the answer can't be that I'm so exhausted and God just asked me to do more work. The answer can't be that I feel sad and depressed and that God just tells me to stop. <laughs> the answer can't be that I don't deserve grace or kindness unless I'm perfect. That can't be the answer, you know? And so for me, I, and there, I found and learned from a lot of people who showed me, you know, like people who didn't believe what I believed. Some of my biggest moments of healing where when people who didn't believe what I believed, my second therapist, you know, asked me straight up, she was like, hey, if you believe this God is kind, why do you think he would respond to you this way? Mm, yeah, I was great like, question. Like, <laughs> you know, like... Well, like paying attention to the gaps, right, between yeah. the things that you say that you believe or profess to be true and then sort of your yep. empirical reality. You, you just said something really beautiful. You said a lot of things really beautifully, but you talked about the body and how we can kind of, we have these tools that can help us honor the body and ask questions of the body. And yeah. I thought it would be nice to kind of have you talk a little bit about trauma in the body. Yeah. I love the distinction that you make between sort of acute trauma, chronic trauma, complex trauma. Yeah. There's so much trauma that we carry around that predates even our consciousness. So can you yeah. tell us a little bit about kind of like your findings there? Yes. Okay. So trauma really, um, in the Greek, it translates to wound. Trauma is any wound of the past that affects how we show up in the present and how we perceive the future. Right. So I think one of the biggest questions I'll add on to what you asked me is like, what's the difference between something that's traumatic and something that just hurt my feelings? Well, did the moment that hurt your feelings shape how you live your life going forward? If it did, then that was traumatic. And 
I say that because we're in a time where people want to create, you know, the big T, little T. Like, well, that was that wasn't as bad as what I went through or, or I went through so much worse or my trauma is not as bad as their trauma. And the truth is a wound is a wound and nobody wins in the pain Olympics. Mm-hmm. We all come in last place. Everyone's in pain. And so all pain deserves respect and tenderness and kindness. And so I'll start there before I get on my little high horse. But there are different ways that trauma presents itself. And that matters for the sake of us detecting it and then going on the path of healing respective to how it shows up. Um, So acute trauma is usually one, what I like to call one grand moment, like a car crash or a natural disaster or something that is like clear and unmistakable to an objective observer, right? That is a moment. That's acute trauma. And then we can have chronic trauma. Chronic trauma, I like to call them the pebbles. So if acute trauma is a boulder, chronic trauma can appear as pebbles, but they're happening so frequently, like having your emotions dismissed or coming home to an alcoholic parent or experiencing spiritual abuse. They happen so frequently that we miss the fact that over time, all these pebbles accumulate to the mass of a boulder. And then there's complex trauma, which is either a combination of both. You can have too acute, you can have too chronic, you can have an acute and a chronic, you can have, it's like the combination of all of them. And that's what makes it complex. It's all pain that then creates in us a lens through which we see ourselves, right? Which I call a negative core belief and CBT calls a negative core belief as well. And this negative core belief is like this truth about ourselves and the world that we extract from our pain and we see and view the world through because Mm -hmm. trauma is not just the moment that happened to us. It's the wound that the moment left us with. And that wound doesn't heal over time. That wound heals with attention and it heals with intention and it heals with opposition And so that's a lot of what this book is about, becoming aware that, you know, just because we haven't had something for a long time doesn't mean we don't still need it. Hey, friends, Hannah here. Interrupting this conversation because already we've talked a lot about the word trauma. And for you, you might have an idea or a picture of what trauma looks like in your brain. But at Onsite, we believe that no one escapes adversity. Everybody goes through challenging circumstances and trauma in their lives. Historically, trauma was something that was very hush-hush. It wasn't something we talked about. And I love that culturally, we are getting more comfortable talking and sharing about our own stories. You may have heard the saying before, you repeat what you don't repair. So that's why it's so important to go back and heal our trauma. Many of us try to navigate life just pushing through the pain of our past, but the reality is if we don't pause and address what's holding us back, we won't be able to begin to live the future that we desire. I have had countless conversations with friends and family members and loved ones who are ready to actually begin the work of healing their trauma, but they're not just sure where to start. My immediate recommendation to almost all of them is the Living Centered Program. The Living Centered program gives people an opportunity to rest and recalibrate and really reconnect with who they've been, what got them there, and who they want to be moving forward. The Living Centered program really gives a graceful lens of viewing our past experiences and identifying our trauma and looking at it with a more compassionate and empathetic lens. Many of us carry around our life experiences and wouldn't even label things as trauma, but Like they say, you can't heal what you don't feel. So the first step is acknowledging that it's there and understanding that it needs a little bit of attention and turning towards. If you're ready to begin your healing journey, I cannot encourage you enough to consider the Living Centered program. You deserve to heal. And what's more, you deserve to thrive. And that's what the Living Centered program gave to me and has given to over tens of thousands of people that have come through that program. So if you're ready to make some change and begin to heal, I encourage you to call our team at 800-341-7432 or by reaching out to us at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com. You deserve to be well, friend. Now let's get back to the show. I love this conversation about trauma and it's so nuanced. Even like we'll have big, like robust internal debates around 
sort of how we define trauma. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's for some people, like the acknowledgement and awareness of like, oh my gosh, my life has not always been perfect is like where they are and where they need to do the work. So I think introducing them to the idea of trauma. And so that's a lot of times where they'll start using like big T, little T trauma. And, you know, I think in, in one iteration of definitions, we've talked about how like trauma is anything less than nurturing, Mm, (laughs) you know, in a childhood system. And then, but then, you know, like our trauma therapists really are about trauma is about what's happening in the here and now. And like you're talking about, it's about the wound to our nervous systems and our bodily systems and how they work together. And so just giving people that awareness of, so that they don't internalize or feel sort of frustration or shame at their response because it's literally a wound to their system um, that needs to be repaired and takes work and care just like if we had a physical wound and it's I think that it's been so interesting and they're learning so much about trauma right now Mm -hmm. that it feels like it's iterating you know it's if if you knew something five years ago about trauma that keep reading because it's the the world is evolving and advancing and I think that your definitions were so clear and helpful for people Mm. and identifying sort of maybe what happened to them yes and even you know walking through my clients walking with my clients through like their chronic anxiety, what feels like chronic anxiety that sometimes can be unresolved trauma. You know, I love that you brought up the nervous system, Lindsay, because I like break down to them. I'm like, listen, we have this nervous system and we have an alarm system. Our nervous system is meant to vacillate between rest and digest and fight or flight. The goal is not to be completely one or other. Like the goal is not to be happy and relaxed all the time and never concerned about anything. The goal is also not to be so alarmed and afraid and anxious all the time. In a perfect world, we're vacillating between the two based on the situations that we're in. But when you experience trauma, your mind and your body and your spirit get stuck in a loop of re-experiencing the danger that was once present that's no longer present, right? So your body's always processing distress. So if we look at a house and, you know, we have the fire alarm system, the fire alarm system should only go off if there's smoke in the house to let you know there's a fire somewhere. If the fire alarm never goes off, you're never house is on fire. Like if you're asleep, you would never know if the house was on fire, right? But if the alarm is always going off, which is anxiety, which is flashbacks, which is tension in the body, which is the nervous system activation that is locked on the on setting when you experience trauma, you're also desensitizing yourself to danger. What happens is the alarm is always on, so you never know if a moment is just a normal moment or if a moment is life-threatening, right? And that's the value of us processing our trauma is that we can recalibrate our nervous system to be alarmed when there's danger and to be at rest when there isn't instead of constantly alarmed or constantly at rest in a way that doesn't allow us to impose boundaries that keep us safe and protect our value. Mm. I'm remembering my therapist many years ago had me kind of stop in the middle of our session, like pay attention to my body. She had me put my hand on my heart and say, thank you. She said, Mm. tell your body, thank you for taking care of you for all these years. Like it's been doing the work that you didn't even know it was doing. It was telling you something's not right here. And I loved that, like slowing down and just saying, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for doing something I didn't know how to do for myself. Um, Yes. Kobe, I can I read some of your words to you and have yes. you kind of break them down for us? There's something in, in light of that. You're talking about trauma and triggers, those physiological responses that we have. This says, triggers remind us that no matter how hard we work, no matter how many accolades we accumulate, we still carry the most vulnerable and terrified versions of ourselves wherever we go. I love that. And the parts of ourselves we so desperately want to silence and forget will make their way to the present at the most inconvenient times if we don't hear what they have to say. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens to our bodies when we don't listen to them? (laughs) (laughs) Our bodies are our relentless advocates. 
even against our better judgment and even against our desire, right? So, like, I I just think about the person who has kind of kept themselves, like, busy and has quietly silenced the alarm or just become accustomed to the alarm of their body's anxiety and activation by pursuing things because you can become desensitized to it. But, you know, something I often say to myself, (laughs) to my husband, to my clients is like, you're reaching and you're striving and the alarm doesn't seem that loud. But when you get to the place where you've actually accomplished the goal, when you get to the place where you're called to rest, when you're when you get to like the proverbial green pastures, all you're going to hear is that alarm. All you're going to hear is that blaring. All you're going to hear is that we're not okay. We're not okay. And, you know, time does not heal. That is like one of the hardest realities. I remember serving a client a couple of years ago and they were in their late 60s and they were processing the death of a parent when they were four. Our bodies grow, but that doesn't mean that our our wounds just like disappear, right? If anything, if someone's hungry and they haven't eaten, time doesn't resolve their problem. Time exacerbates their hunger, and like, and then the hunger affects more things. If I'm hungry for an hour, I can still have a meeting. I can concentrate. If I've been starved for days, there are very few things I can do well, including accurately perceive what's around me, right? Pain can create a, a, set, a sense of like delusion and distortion of the world around us. And I think a lot of us are looking to just become a better version of ourselves, Like, I am going to outrun this version of myself that needs tenderness. But that part of you that needs tenderness is going to scream from the rooftops until they get it. And they're always going to need it until you give it to them. A need is not met until it's met. You know, and I think a lot of us need to make space to let ourselves be loved by ourselves, by our communities, by God, to give ourselves the gentleness we didn't get as children, the kindness, the attention, the fun, the play, the silliness. You know, just because our bodies have matured doesn't mean that our souls have outgrown the needs of our childhood. Yeah. We're talking a lot about trauma and triggers, and I know grief is very much part of that Mm. little family, right? And we've been talking about the body and I've been personally, I'm, I'm kind of on a grief journey myself. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of us are, because I know grief is not just like the big stuff, right? There's, yeah. I mean, we're talking about trauma, acute and complex, and grief can be any, any sort of loss, right? I recently got a massage, asked the therapist, um, mm-hmm. I said, hey, do you, have you noticed grief coming up in a certain area of the body? Like, is there a common denominator here? Which obviously, grief can probably you know, tuck itself into any little nook or cranny that it sees fit, right, for different different people. As she's working on my right side, I was feeling on fire on my left side. And she said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly certain, but I, in my studies, I was told that grief often resides on the left side. And I'm not necessarily asking if you believe that to be true, but like, mm-hmm. how have you seen grief manifesting itself in people's bodies? I will say as she got to the left side, she hit a point and I started crying. Somatic release. Um, yeah. yeah, somatic release. So, and I'm really grateful for that. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for it. Mm-hmm. It came at me kind of out of nowhere, but it was really beautiful. And she held space for me in that moment. So yeah, yeah. I just love to hear kind of what you've seen in your work. Yeah, I, if there's like one place I've seen grief show up is in headaches. Like there's just like my clients who are experiencing grief and Um, oftentimes who don't have the capacity to process it, maybe because life is, you know, just crazy or they have a lot of work, like they struggle with sleeping and they have a lot of headaches, you know? And I think that sometimes we miss that, like, every part of the body, like, works together. Like, there's no world where my body dies and my soul is just, like, visibly moving around in the earth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like they're, they're deeply intertwined. And I say that to remind my clients, and I say talk about this in the book, that like with every emotion we experience there's a hormonal release. There's a reason why you get hot when you're angry. There's a reason why your hands get cold when you're nervous. Like there's a redirection of blood flow. There's a release of hormones. And if we don't it's express that, right? I talk about what Jill said, um, all motion, all emotion wants to move. It's emotion. If we don't express that, if we don't move through that, through moving our bodies, it sticks with us. 
Mm. It stays with us in, in sickness and accumulation. And it's common. I mean, I remember getting a massage and just like, she just, she gently touched my back and I just lost it. I just lost it. And I was just like, okay, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. And, you know, a lot of us have accumulated, you know, we have a hormonal accumulation of adrenaline, of cortisol, because we're feeling things we're not expressing. And the body is carrying the weight of the accumulated pain that we're not expressing. Mm. And what would you recommend for people, you know, who maybe don't have a therapist? Like, what would you say to them? Like, what's, what's a practice that you think that they should kind of adopt to move through that? So incredibly simple. And people are usually like, really? You know, those those uh, TikToks and those Instagram reels where people are like taking a stupid walk for my stupid mental health. <laughs> Take a stupid walk for your stupid mental health. Really, like move your body in a way that doesn't demand anything of it, right? Mm. That simply is giving to it, but not taxing it, right? And I think that that's so important in this type of work because putting our body under extreme pressure regularly can re-traumatize us, can remind us of times where we felt physically, emotionally, mentally abused or under pressure. So going on a simple walk once a day, 10 minutes, five minutes, however long feels good to you in your body, take a walk. I heard sort of in your story, the, the portions I was able to read, sort of this like, continued pursuit of healing you know it's like from that first experience with your brother-in-law texting who's just a friend at the time and just pursuing you and sort of saying healing is possible you're not alone in this and then you finding your therapist and beginning to like find tools you know that practically could like help you manage your anxiety and then later you talk about sort of the additional tool of experiential therapy. And I w- I'd love to hear some about how that was like new for you as a trauma therapist that, you know, had a lot of tools and resources, how that was like different and healing. And what I love about it is just that it, I think there are all these different things that are available to us. And it's yes. like, keep, keep digging, keep trying, keep yes. meeting yourself there. You're worth it, you know? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So, my, <laughs> you know, as a clinician, you're always reading and studying and like all the things. But my first real visceral introduction to experiential therapy was at on-site workshops. My goodness, I thought I was going to a cute little workshop that would help me get a little more calm and regulated as I run my business. It was the Leadership Academy. And, you know, it's one thing to learn about something, to read about it. It is another thing to experience it. And I think that's at the core of experiential therapy. Like, we can talk about what our needs are all the time. You can talk about what you want to eat for dinner but it's different than actually eating dinner. It's different than actually picking up a fork and putting it in your mouth and tasting the flavors and chewing and swallowing. And like, and Absolutely. that's what Onsite offered me was like in a mental cognitive way. I knew, okay, movement, okay, breath, okay, community, okay, groups. Trauma work happens quicker in groups. That's just, that's, that's a, a fact backed up by several studies. I knew all of that, but to be in that as a human with my own things, with people who had different faith perspectives, different life experiences, different races, different genders, and yet I got to, for a moment, hold center stage And have all of these people from various backgrounds respect me and who I was and my beliefs was like wild. You know, I talk about in the book, not to give too much away, but I had this incredible moment where I had just kind of like let loose in a way I never had before and was just met with a love and a tenderness. It's it is it was the physical embodiment of what I experienced in the moment that saved my life. Absolute strangers and strangers I would not have picked out. Mm, love that. And like, that was the beauty of onsite for me. And so after I left onsite, 
I dove like head first into experiential trainings because I'd done a couple trainings, read a couple things, but I went like head first into experiential trainings, into studying, into understanding, you know, sociometry and and, uh, psychodrama and all different types of experiential work and then doing it with my clients. And it was like something clicked Mm -hmm. because as I was at onsite, I literally was writing my journal. Oh my goodness, the clients who get why they're in pain but can't move through it, this is what they need. Like they need to be able to literally move through it. And so I dove into it. I have a retreat where I do it at and have sent many a friends to onsite. But I think that what's powerful about experiential work for anyone who's never heard of it before, experiential work is where you take the internal landscape of your pain and of your joy and you bring it out of you, in front of you, using people and props, and you, in a visceral way, get to organize and interact with the different things that you're already organizing and interacting with, but in front of you, Mm. with guidance, with wisdom, with the ability to reflect, you know? So experiential work is my jam, and it will be Mm -hmm. my jam forever. (laughs) I can imagine that must be so rewarding to see the fruit of that with with your clients, knowing that you first experienced that and kind of brought that into your work. What do you, are there any common threads that you see when you kind of do some of this stuff with your clients? Yes. uh, The common thread that I see with my clients oftentimes is that they know the answer. Whatever it is, when it's all laid out in front of them, the answer is obvious and it's hard to go down another mental tangent when what you're dealing with is in front of your eyes. Interesting. Like when you see it in front of you, many of them know the answer. It's not about whether the answer is the right one. It's often about the price of choosing themselves, the price of actually making the decision to honor the answer they know is best for them. And that's usually what we're working through. We're not working through how do I, what do I? Usually they know. We're often working through and what will this cause in my life if I set these boundaries? Mm-hmm. What will happen if I say no to this person? And what does this bring up from the past that I feel like I'm reliving now that I may be reliving or I may not be reliving? Yeah. And that's the power of that. You're really talking about then it seems like moving past fear, helping your clients move past yes. fear. Just in general, if it was a thing, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a a creature, a being, right? Yeah, it is. Yes. And oh my gosh. So I talked about in the book, the monster in the room, the same friend, you know, he's again, brother-in-law. So we're, we're pretty close. He like shares this like parable that I share with myself and with my clients and pretty much anyone who has ears. He always says, you know, if a kid is afraid of the monster under their bed, what do you do? And the first time he said this to me, I said, uh, you tell them, come sleep in my room, like, get away from the monster, you know? <laughs> and his response was like, no, wrong. You tell the kid to go back in there and tell the monster to leave. Because if the monster can chase you out of one room, the monster can chase you out of any room. Mm. And that is a lot of trauma work is there's this one place, like, uh, it makes me think of when you have a toothache, sometimes you can, the pain registers in your ear. But the ear is not the cause of the pain. The pain is just being referred to the ear because there's a neural network con- that connects your ear and your and your teeth, right? And like, that's often what happens when people come to me with therapy. They're like, I have an earache. And I'm like, no, you have a toothache. And they're like, no, I have an earache. And then I have to break down to them. Hey, these networks are connected, yeah. right? These networks are connected. And I know it seems like the best thing I could do for you would be to deal with your ear when really the best thing I can do for you is to deal with your tooth and then your ear will stop hurting. And for many people, they come to me and they're like, I just want to change my patterns. I just want to I just want to stop doing this. I want to lose weight. I want to reach this goal. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I'm like, so we have to deal with your trauma. And they're like, no, I don't want to. First visit. No. And they're like, no, I don't, I don't want to. And, you know, I do build rapport before we get into it. Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) Slowly helping them see like, no, we got to deal with your trauma because, you know, if we implement all these tools, they're not going to, they're not going to work with longevity. There's only so long a a gauze and a bandaid can help a, help a, a, a gunshot wound. 
right? It may help while you're being transferred to the hospital, but it's not going to help when you're living your everyday life. You know, and so helping people understand, like, this is a wound that's deeper. And, like, if you really want to run on this leg, we have to do the deeper work. And what's hard about the deeper work is sometimes healing the wound is more painful than the wound being inflicted in the first place. And it creates this sense of grief and anger and rage. And all of that is normal. Like, we have to get acquainted with those emotions. We can't. We can't avoid them and experience the true path of healing because the reality is you shouldn't have to deal with this. (laughs) You shouldn't have to heal from this trauma. You shouldn't have had to carry that burden, you know? Have to know, is your brother-in-law your brother-in-law because your sister married him or because you married this guy's brother? My brother-in-law is my brother-in-law because I married his twin brother. (laughs) Look at that guy. What a life changer. Yes, Okay, so is that a byproduct of you doing your work? Like, can you share that with us? Is that part of the story? Yeah. My, me being with my husband? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think for sure. I think that, you know, my husband was, when to get emotional because I love Kyle. My husband was one of the few people who just saw me and loved me, you know? And, like, I'm talking, he used to, like, he, he got friend-zoned for a very long time. <laughs> Um, like nine months. <laughs> Gestation period. <laughs> oh, wow. Prophetic even. Yeah. But, you know, he was uh, he was just a good friend, you know, a good person. And I think for me, was that all of the work? No. And I think the work can happen in seasons. And I mentioned this in the book, but like, the work happens as we live. We don't stop living to do the work. The work is our lives. The part of the work is having fun. Part of the work is letting people love us. Part of the work is laughing uncontrollably. Part of the work is, you know, letting ourselves dance and move and do things that we love. And I think, you know, if it wasn't for that moment with my brother-in-law, I don't know if I would have even let someone like my husband love me because I felt like I'm too damaged and no one can see me. But I had reference for a reality where someone saw me and loved me. And so I could let that happen again. Yeah, that's great. That's so beautiful. It would be interesting, Kobe, because so much of our audience is probably, well, they're either pro-therapy and pro-God or they're pro-therapy and very skeptical of God. And I know that you talk to a lot of audiences that are more religious, so you're trying to help them open their lens of, like, there's more tools and resources, you know, like don't shy away from this. But I'm curious about like, what would you say to someone that is done therapeutic work, but is reticent of the power of having a higher power Mm. in their healing process? Yeah. Well, you know, for anybody who is skeptical of a higher power at all. Like there's studies that show that having a higher power helps us in our journey, right? And what matters is not that we have our higher power. What matters is what we believe about our higher power. So uh, Baylor University did a study on adults with anxiety disorders in the U.S. and prayer. And in their study, they found that people that prayed to a God that they felt was angry at them, skeptical towards them, or was just mean, those people actually had higher anxiety symptoms. But people who prayed to a God that they believed was ready to meet their needs, was kind and loving and saw them as good, those people had decreased anxiety symptoms. And so... I always like to tell my clients, it's not that you believe in God. It's what you believe about God. It's not that you have a higher power. It's what you believe about your higher power. Because I think sometimes for those of us who feel like we have a clear higher power, we can beat other people over the head. Meanwhile, our beliefs about our higher power are making us more anxious. Mm -hmm. Right. And the truth is, like, we have to reshape if the way that we view God doesn't honor the way God has made us. Then we have to ask ourselves, why am I viewing God this way? Yeah, and it seems like you definitely had to do some work there to deconstruct your idea of what what your higher power, what God meant to you, the way God saw you, right? Absolutely. I had to ask myself, what kind of God would see me at my weakest moment and show me kindness? Like, 
I don't like there are lots of humans that don't do that, you know? And I think for me, it was really about getting acquainted with a version of God that loved me as a person instead of a version of God that had a weak ego and needed my praise to feel full. And when I got connected to God in a way that was truly personal to who I was, I think I put this in the book. I felt like I felt God with me when I was dancing to a Justin Bieber song. Yeah. A lot of times to rap, we kind of talk to people about things that they're doing that are helping them stay centered and grounded in today. And so I'm just curious, what is sort of helping you in the here and now? So I used to be a hip hop dancer. Used to. Yes. What, what happened? What happened? Kids, <laughs> Kids in a pandemic. <laughs> okay, fair. Yeah, I used to be a hip-hop dancer. <laughs> now I, I don't post them, but I'll like catch a couple like cute little hip-hop routines on like TikTok and I'll save them to my phone. And when the kids go down to sleep, I'll like watch them and learn them and do the, the little routines just for fun, letting myself do something that has nothing to do with performance and nothing to do with a goal, but just something that I love doing, which is dancing. I love that. Thinking about just like nonlinear movement, play yeah. as even like part of continuing the healing journey, which I love yes. that. Yeah. And play for adults. Yeah. We need play too. Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> I've, I've got kids too. So does Lindsay. We need play. It's so yeah. they encourage us to kind of push pause and, and savor those moments, kind of lean in. I love it. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you so much, Kobe, for being yeah. with us today and for sharing all your wisdom. And uh, we're so excited about your book release, April 4th. Well, thank you. Yeah. Why am I like this? Why am I like this? Yeah. Um, is there anything? Yeah. Is there anything you want our listeners to know, Kobe? Get your book, obviously. Yeah. You are founder of The Healing Circle. I don't know if we yes. said that in the beginning. So you can find Kobe on all the on all the Internet places yep. on Instagram, KobeCampbell.com. Yep. Find her. She's waiting for you. Yes. Um, I'll say grab the book. Um, Grab the book for yourself. Grab the book for every person who's asking questions. Does God care? Grab the book for any person who is wondering what it means to have the experiences they have of God, but also wrestle with the truth of what they've also experienced in the past, the abuse, the disappointment, the abandonment. So if you grab the book, you can also go to my website and start reading right away. The book comes out April 4th and uh, you can start reading right away. Chapters one and two, we talked about moving through fear. I have a five day devotional called Moving Past Fear. And then I walk you through a faith-based coping skill in a video and you get all of that for free once you pre-order the book and submit your information to my website. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kobe. Thank you. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.